The Way Out Podcast, episode 58. My name is Nikki DeBose, and I'm a former model. Now I'm an author. I'm an advocate. I work with lawmakers all around the country to shape and try to pass laws concerning mental health. It's a very raw, very real uh, memoir. I did it on purpose because I wanted people to understand exactly what it was like to have mental illness. I think sometimes there's still this misconception about what it may be like to have an eating disorder or what it may be like to have depression, but I wanted to just be very open and honest and relay it exactly as it was. There's often something at the very bottom that we have to address, something that maybe happened long ago that maybe has never been touched on, and, and, that's, and that's what needs to be worked on. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on this week's installment of The Way Out, sharing stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. The Way Out does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. Our purpose is to share with you, one episode at a time, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. The Way Out podcast is sponsored by Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous, online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check out the official website of the Way Out podcast at www.wayoutcast.com. There you will find links to our latest episodes on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Radio FM. You can also follow The Way Out Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Help us get the message out that lifelong recovery from alcoholism and addiction is possible by giving us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. The Way Out Podcast is on now. I'm your host, Charlie L. This week, I'm thrilled to bring you part one of my interview with Nikki DeBose a former supermodel turned author, ambassador, and mental health and addiction and alcoholism recovery advocate. Nikki's memoir, Washed Away, From Darkness to Light, is a stunningly honest and vulnerable account of her life. Nikki suffered unthinkable early childhood trauma and soon after began a life and death battle with eating disorders, mental illness, alcoholism, and addiction, any one of which is a lethal illness as too many of us know all too well. Spoiler alert, Nikki's story has a happy ending, which we'll have for you next week. This week, we've got part one of this amazing interview on tap straight away. Listen up. Nikki, welcome to the Way Out podcast. I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show I want to put this out right away. You have authored uh, uh, one of the most amazing uh, books that I have had the privilege to read. It is called Washed Away from Darkness to Light. And it is a memoir and really a, um, a, a, a beautiful account of your story, Nikki, of recovery. And quite a story and quite a journey it really was uh, for you to get to the amazing place that you are today, the beautiful place that you are today, living as an extension of recovery 
and living a life that shows other people that there is hope if you are addicted. There is hope if you are battling mental illness. There is hope if you have an eating disorder. There is hope, right? And you spend your days today showing people, telling people, and allowing them to believe and know that there is hope from these incredibly debilitating and often deadly diseases. So thank you for what you do. Thank you for who you are. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here, Charles. And um, I really appreciate your passion also, you know, for helping others. And uh, yeah, it's like you said, it can be a deadly disease or you can choose recovery you know, like we were talking about earlier before the show, there comes a point where you can choose recovery um, or you can let the disease consume you. You know, it's very ironic because today is August 24th and tomorrow is the five year anniversary of my mother's death um, when she passed away from her alcoholism combined with a lot of other things, you know, domestic violence. And um, she was in recovery home for 60 days. Uh, and then, you know, we know it's not, you know, we, we know that mental illnesses are not anyone's fault. Um, but it was very hard to watch my mom go through that. And so it's very, I guess, poignant that, you know, I would be here talking and sharing. It really, it means a lot to me, especially right now, you know, because as you're saying that they can be often deadly, I know that very well, you know, with my mother passing away from alcoholism. And that's a very a big part of the book, your relationship with your mother and the uh, her mental illness and how that really affected not only her, but uh, you as well in terms of, you know, what that's like to be the daughter of somebody who has a mental illness and is really struggling herself to cope with just being healthy and stable, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and uh, you know, uh, you're not getting, as a, as a child, getting your needs met, right? And what that means and how that, and, and how that unfolds, really, within uh, your recovery journey. So let's step, take a step back, and why don't we introduce the Way Out podcast audience to uh, Nikki DeBose today, uh, what you do for uh, uh, not only the recovery community, but the community at large and um, uh, what keeps you busy these days. And then maybe we could take a little trip back to, you know, um, what it was like to grow up uh, 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 as Nikki DeBose um, and what a little, a little taste of, you know, the, uh, you, you coming of age in a very difficult environment and how that uh, manifested uh, later in life. Okay, well, so my name is Nikki DeBose, and I'm a former model. Now I'm an author. I'm an advocate. I work with lawmakers all around the country to shape and try to pass laws concerning mental health, and particularly uh, young people who've been affected by sexual abuse. Um, I'm an ambassador for a mental health foundation, the Shaw Mind Foundation. Um, so really, I just go around. I speak to different organizations, tell my story. Um, I'm working on another book about the recovery process because my memoir washed away. I have to preface, you know, it's, it's can be triggering if you're not very strong in your 
recovery process. It's a very raw, very real uh, memoir. I did it on purpose because I wanted people to understand exactly what it was like to have mental illness. Um, I think sometimes there's still this misconception about what it may be like to have an eating disorder or what it may be like to have depression, but I wanted to just be very open and honest and relay it exactly as it was. Um, I'm also in school for psychology. I went back to school pursuing, I want to be a doctor one day, and I'm a director of a nonpartisan political league uh, here in Los Angeles. So I'm very much interested not only in the psychology, studying that, writing books, but in working with our government uh, to help shape our laws so that they're more geared towards mental health because I think that's very important and we're not we're not getting that we're not our our, our lawmakers are not uh, putting enough emphasis on the mental health issue and there's such a stigma around mental health today isn't there um still yeah. and and there's a stigma uh regarding addiction and alcoholism for sure there's a stigma around eating disorders there's a stigma around mental health and that stigma is uh that for one reason or another there's a there's a a general view that um it's that person's fault that they're doing something if they could just if they could just have a stronger will if they just had the willpower right they could they could stop doing what they're doing how can they do that to themselves kind of stigma and that really ignores a really critical fact in mental illness, in eating disorders, and in addiction and alcoholism. And that critical fact is it's a disease. Right. You know, their brain-based illnesses combined with the fact that they're social, physiological, biological, all sorts. So it it takes a lot of re-education, you know, educating schools, government, um, parents. A lot of times I've noticed that it just goes back to the family and sometimes the people you're closest to having that conversation and trying to educate. Um, A lot of work needs to be done in the school system. Like I said, with government, I, I send government officials my book, you know, and I have conversations. Another issue is that like in this political climate, there's a lot of protesting going on. The conversation I've had with lawmakers is that if you can just go and set up a meeting with them as a constituent, as a parent, as a advocate, as a person who's been affected by mental illness, don't protest. Go set up a meeting, have a nice, normal, calm conversation with them, regardless of their party preference, and just talk to them about the issue uh, if it's concerning mental health, tell them your what you want to talk to them about and try to have a very calm conversation. Because I think when there's all this protesting going on, they're not going to be open, you know, to hearing uh, what you want to talk about. That immediately puts them on the defensive, doesn't it? Uh, of course. Yeah. Right. How would right. you feel if you had people screaming outside of your house all the time? Right. Right. My first instinct wouldn't be to invite them in for tea. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. So. so I think that's a very, very uh, uh, intelligent approach, Nikki. One of the things you, you just said, which I think is so important when it comes to um, the um, advocacy of whether it be mental health or addiction, is those are co-morbid conditions often. Right. right? How that, that we're 50 percent more likely to have an addiction or alcoholism if we've have mental illness right. and and vice versa 
So right. those things can be intrinsically tied together. And what I found in my own personal recovery was that I needed to address my mental health as well as my addiction and alcoholism. That's that, that sort of multi-pronged approach is how I got better, yeah. right? At times during my active addiction and alcoholism, I try to treat my depression and my anxiety with very limited success and vice versa because they trigger each other. Yes. And then oftentimes when they're, it's, they're always very layered. So if you're having an addiction that's going on, it's what's underneath that addiction. Like you said, so maybe you have depression or you have anxiety. Well, what's underneath the depression and anxiety? Did something happen in your childhood? Did you have a trauma? Bingo. Did you PTSD, right? PTSD. And what's triggering the PTSD? So we have to go back, I, at least in my personal opinion, I mean, I believe that there's often something in the very bottom that we have to address, something that maybe happened long ago that maybe has never been touched on, and, and that's and that's what needs to be worked on. And so let's 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 go there with you. What was it in uh, for Nikki that you had to address? So uh, let's, let's let's throw that out there because I think I believe in that. You know, you're very candid in your book. Uh, uh, you battled uh, a, a, an eating disorder specifically. Uh, bulimia, but also anorexia at times, uh, but mo uh, specifically bulimia, um, uh, alcoholism. Um, you are a survivor of. Thing. Are you there? Pretty much everything. Yeah, all of the things. <laughs> all of the things. Yes, and that's the thing is that, you know, we call some people double winners, right? If, you know, you have an addiction and then. You know, maybe you're also codependent. I think you uh, uh, you take the cake. I can't even call myself a triple winner. I'm like, <laughs> I, I don't even know what that is. A 20th winner? I, mean, I don't know because it's like everything. I mean, but, you know, the, yes. And, and so at the, at the very beginning of that, I mean, yes, my parents got divorced when I was two. But I don't even really know how much that affected me. I mean, I do know how that affected me. But I... For the sake of this podcast, I don't really want to go into that because I don't consider that it's just so layered. So I think what needs to be, you know, looked at is um, definitely the, the the abuse because I know that, you know, like abuse is very damaging to a child and working working with you know people who have mental health conditions i know that there's also this saying that you don't want to parent blame so i'm definitely not parent blaming but when there is abuse there's actual physical abuse emotional abuse and sexual abuse that's a completely different category right absolutely um so i just want to specify that um so with, with with the physical with all of the abuse that was going on in my household starting at like age four until thirteen that I mean those were like the most um, you know impressionable years of my life formative years those are formative years right and those are years as uh, as a child we deeply not only crave but require emotional security. Right. From those that are there to care for us, for, from our from our uh, pa from our parents. And uh, you didn't get that. You got that in spots with with Nana. Right. <laughs> you got that in spots, you know. Right. And, and your face I lights up when I say Nana. Right. Uh, because, from you know, health too. So if anyone thinks that's a they don't know what that word comes from. It's a southern like a definitely. Southern. So, yeah. 
you know, if you, if you have someone in your life, if you ever come from a bad situation, but maybe you were lucky enough to have a mentor or someone in your life who was special to you, that's, that's who that person was to me. So thank God I, I had that person and my dad was a good person, but because I didn't get to see him that much, it created this whole, you know, weird dynamic where I felt always like torn apart and here and there and all over the place. And that's not a good place for a child to be. So the people who were taking care of me all the time, they were abusing me. And when a child doesn't know how to, how to healthily cope with something, they oftentimes will turn inward, you know, or they will turn to, to, to negative or maladaptive coping behaviors. And so for me, that was definitely crude. And that was, um, uh, I started to um, turn to exercise at a very young age, and you know I started to um, have these. They, I, I wouldn't say they were internal voices. I would say it was definitely an outer voice that was starting to become like an angry voice and starting to call me call me bad names and starting to you know say weird things. And I was listening to this voice, and I was over exercising as eight years old and, and I was starting to hate myself, you know, already as a child, not having those years of like, you know, going outside and playing or, or forming healthy bonds with my family or friends or doing things that every child should do. Um, so I, I was already showing signs also of being very promiscuous, but by myself, like, you know, doing things, children who are sexually abused, like they might masturbate a lot, or they might do things that if you, if you, if you see a child, uh, uh, who's very promiscuous as a child or wetting the bed a lot or doing things, it should definitely take notice. Um, if you go to peacefulheartsfoundation.org, they have an entire list of, uh, things of, for children who have been sexually abused, these are signs of this. And it's often missed, you know, because it's not a very obvious thing. Um, And maybe it's mistaken as a phase or just quote something that they're going through. Correct. Um, So the the physical abuse was, it really lowered my self-esteem, you know, a lot. And I internalized it and I thought, did you think there was something wrong with you right. at that age? Like there must be something wrong with me if they're treating me this way. hundred percent. And I had that internal dialogue, like what's wrong with you? Stupid. You know, I actually started to call myself the names that were being said to me. Right. So when the sexual abuse came into play, I didn't even understand that at all. Uh, you know, what was going on with me and, and, and to deal with that, I just started to eat a lot more like a lot more to, to the extent of binge eating to where the feelings of shame and the guilt came into play. And I would play little games all of a sudden with myself, you know, like hiding the food and actually having an adrenaline rush, similar to when you are using drugs, that sort of high and low. Um, a couple There's of- a rush in being able to uh, successfully sort of engage on this compulsive behavior, right? Correct. This compulsive behavior gives you this sense of a control. I think maybe, you yes. know, I can totally relate Nikki when you talk about, uh, the compulsive behavior, uh, because that definitely manifested in my own, um, in my own journey as well. And one of the things that it did was, you know, our brains are really so so powerful. And my brain, just like your brain, 
realized real quick that if I ate something or I ate a lot of something that I liked, I felt good. Mm -hmm. Right. And it was immediately a, my brain learned that this is what I can do in order to feel good. And next time I feel bad about myself, next time I feel icky, next time I feel like I want to, you know, uh, that I hate myself, that I can't stand being in my own skin, that I make myself sick, I can do this and I can get out of myself. Even if it's just for a brief fleeting moment of time, it's, it's worth it. Because I'm getting out of myself and being in myself and in my own skin at that moment is uh, is is absolutely in intolerable. Can you relate to that? We'll be right back to our interview with Nikki as we pause for this week's edition of Recovery Revealed, where we take a closer look at a particular aspect of recovery. The concept of hitting bottom is oft discussed and presents itself in widely varying degrees of severity from one recovering addict or alcoholic to another. Some of us have had to be on the literal verge of physical death in order to, quote, reach bottom, end quote, and surrender to our disease, while others hit other types of bottoms, be it emotional, spiritual, or a combination therein. Still others skidded across the proverbial bottom for months, years, or perhaps decades before becoming willing to do whatever it takes to recover. Lest we forget those who reached their bottom through the exposure of a program of recovery, shedding light on their until then hidden addiction. Each and every one of us who have reached our bottom, no matter how we got there, are indeed the fortunate few who stopped drinking and using while we're still living. As far too many addicts and alcoholics only stop at the point their bodies take their last breath. I heard early and often in the rooms of the 12-step fellowships, we all stop drinking and drugging at some point. The blessed among us are still alive when that happens. The longer I am in active recovery and have the privilege of sharing amazing recovery journeys in downloadable fashion, the more I feel that our bottoms are indeed when we choose to stop digging. However we arrive at our spiritual, emotional, physical, or complete and total bottom, I have yet to meet one person in long-term recovery from alcoholism or addiction that isn't grateful for have reached it exactly in the way and at the exact time they did. A true recognition that every one of us, though on a collective recovery journey, came to this journey of recovery in our own way and through our own path through experiences uniquely our own. For those of you who are new in recovery or considering recovery, I urge you to understand that we don't have to go down to the lowest point possible in order to achieve meaningful and lasting recovery. Most of us haven't had to go down to the very bottom, though often it feels that way at the very end. Whatever it takes for you to be willing to do whatever it takes to get better, to recover, is right as rain, so long as it works for you. Now back to our interview with the incomparable Nikki 
vegetables. And that was so addictive because the 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 chemicals that are released are very similar to again drugs. Um, there's a high that's released in your brain when you when you um, consume a lot of food and you purge it. Um, and I was a full-blown bulimic for most of my life. Um, couldn't stop. Got to the point where I was doing it like more than 10 times a day. I couldn't stop doing that. So you think that you're exerting the control over eating disorders, but then it gets to the point to where you don't have the control anymore and they have the control over you. Don't forget the way we get the message out to those who still suffer is to give this podcast a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. 100%. That's how I live my life, you know, for most of my life. Um, and and I, the thing is, is that because I was so little, I didn't understand what I was doing. I just knew that I wanted a lot of food. And that's how it started. Right. That's how it started. And then I started to feel so disgusting about myself because I was eating so much. Um, but a couple of years later, I figured out some way that believe it was I heard my mother throwing up but I don't want to totally confirm that but I'm pretty sure those memories that I started to purge my food and that was so addictive because the 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 chemicals that are released are very similar to again drugs um there's a high that's released in your brain when you when you um, consume a lot of food and you purge it um and I was a full-blown bulimic for most of my life. Um, couldn't stop. The, the terrible thing, you know, about the eating disorders is that they, uh, particularly with anorexia, has the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. Bulimia is extremely damaging to your body, and you can die, you know, with one purge. I've had friends who have died from that. And so I'm very thankful to God that I didn't die from that, but I was, it got to the point where I was doing it, like, more than 10 times a day. I couldn't stop doing that. Um, so and when you got this obsession, was it like an obsession? I, you know, when, when I succumb to my addiction, when I succumb to a compulsive behavior, it's definitely like this, something else that overtakes me. Right. And, um, uh, I have literally, um, no prayer. Once that obsession starts to take hold, I know it's only a matter of time before I relinquish, right? Um, my, uh, I, I, I can only protest it for so long. And that's why, you know, as we'll talk about in recovery, it wasn't about winning my, against my obsession. My obsession got removed. It got plain old removed, right? Um, I never won a battle against my addiction, my alcoholism because it's a it was a fixed fight right like right. I, I, it was just rigged from the beginning can you relate absolutely well with eating disorders what ends up happening is from the beginning um they are um they actually um start out as to where you are doing them but then they have the control over you so you think that you're exerting the control over eating disorders but then it gets to the point to where you don't have the control anymore and they have the control over you so that's the problem and with eating disorders unlike alcohol or drugs you know, I, I i my solution to my being an alcoholic uh, is through the 12 steps, but it's an abstinence-based program, right? Correct. I 
don't drink anymore. It's been over two and a half years since I've had a drink. It's been two and a half years since I've had any drug. And it's complete abstinence. If I went two and a half years, Nikki, without eating, I'd be dead. Exactly. You need so to survive. You need food to survive. So um, uh, uh, what a difficult, uh, what a difficult uh, illness to navigate in that respect because you can't just stop eating. You cannot just stop eating. Um, and, that's, and that's particularly why eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. And that's why we are trying to advocate so much for people to pay attention, for them to be educated, not that alcoholism, not that drug addiction, not that they're not just as important because they all are. All, men- all mental illnesses are just as important as physical illnesses. Um, but particularly with the eating disorders, I don't think that people pay enough attention, you know, but like you said, we need food to survive. Um, and they're not, they're not, the thing is, is that they're not these glamorized illnesses that people make them out to be, you know, and also a person who had, there's this kind of weird thing in the community that a person who has anorexia has achieved some kind of great thing because they are thinner than someone who has a binge eating disorder. You know, every person who, the point is that every person who's suffering, they're suffering. You know, you have a mental period, you're suffering deeply. And so you need sympathy and compassion. Um, You don't need someone judging you. You need uh, an ear to hear you and an arm to extend, uh, you know, a hand of of care and helping. And that's so important, Nikki, when you talk about that. I see your recovery dog with you. Uh, That is so amazing uh, that you've got your recovery dog with you. Uh, because, um, uh, you know, without my recovery dog, I don't know who I'd be. So, uh, he can stay right there, right by you, uh, uh, for the rest of the interview. Uh, I have two recovery dogs and one is a brat, so I don't know. He might start barking. <laughs> that's okay. That's, all, that's perfectly fine with me. Um, so tell me a little bit about, so, uh, as your, uh, uh illness progresses, Nikki, and you talk about the dangerous um, state of your um, of your disease, where you are literally purging uh, ten times a day because it gives that uh, that release, that dopamine release, and that 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 moment of time, right? That precious moment of time where all of the all of the pain goes away, all of the self hatred goes away, right? At that moment in time, all of that goes away, right? So uh, tell me about how uh, that manifests for you as you begin a career in modeling, which, by the way, um, uh, in no uncertain terms, advocates for um, uh, rather unhealthy, um, uh, rather unhealthy weights. Yeah, and and I mean, I you know have become since I left that career, I have really tried to push for laws to 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 help models who may be suffering from an eating disorder not to control what people look like, but because when I worked on this bill last year with Assembly Member Levine, we found out from research at Harvard that there was forty percent of models who are suffering from an eating disorder, and that's reported. So remember that can be different. Bingo. Uh, so we're not trying to impose on someone's um, life. It's just we're trying to help people who can be suffering. Um, but, 
you know, by the time I started modeling, I mean, I started modeling when I was 16, like, you know, at a rather amateur level. Um, but at, even by the time I was 16, I was very sick because I had had an eating disorder for eight years already, you know, and I wasn't like going to the doctor with my family and getting treatment at an inpatient center or, you know, like I should have been. Um, so the things that were said to me, even when I went to the modeling school at that amateur level, I was bullied and literally fat shamed in front of a class. I mean, that's exactly, I'm not being dramatic. That's exactly what happened. And so because of that, um, it, it, it really triggered, you know, an emotional response within me that caused me to further hate myself because I wasn't in an environment that sort of, um, nurtured me for my talents or, you know, what I could offer. So I went home, I remember after that day, and I just continued to binge purge and kind of self-loathe. And that cycle just continued for a really long time. When I did go and I, um, I, I did sign a, a, a big modeling contract with one of the best modeling agencies in the world, I had to move from Los Angeles to Miami and I actually was working in television before I started in modeling. So I had already had a taste of like this whole, um, entertainment business. I had very low self-esteem because I was often my, my nose was caught out a lot in, in the entertainment business, which happens for every, like basically if you go work in entertainment, they're going to say something about something about your looks because it's, it's, it's entertainment, you know, they want you to change something because it's, you're paid based on your looks. Right. So, but, but the, the, the thing that I was trying to point out was that because I had mental health issues, because I had BDD and because I had an eating disorder, um, for me, it was completely different. So when someone said to me, you know, we don't like your nose, it triggered that emotional response to where I would self harm to where I would literally lock myself in the house and I would eat like 10,000 calories and throw it up multiple times, you know, a day. So that's not normal. You know, that's versus someone maybe with a healthy mind who can say, okay, maybe they don't like my nose, but you know, I'm going to move forward and I'm going to try with more castings and you see what I mean? Right. Absolutely. And it really sort of added extra fuel to a fire that was really already uh, 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 burning rather rapidly uh, inside of you in terms of the, uh, you know, sort of self-hate that was going on and the self-harm. And you do a wonderful job, Nikki, in the book, uh, as you said earlier, of making the uh, personifying the the illness and the disease and how that manifested inside of you this this insidious sort of voice that would say awful things like you deserve this you are uh, uh you're ugly you're horrible uh you stupid you know what right most of the time it would curse because by that right. time i was so sick that I felt like the sicker I got with my eating disorder and depression, the, the more the, the, like the voice actually got darker. People with eating disorders do report a lot of times having um, a voice that's out, they feel like it's outside of them. 
Also, though, last uh, two years ago, I was diagnosed with psychosis. So I don't know if that voice was, you know, it could have been an eating disorder voice. It also could have been a mixture of psychosis voice. But the voice was there, and it's a lot quieter now. But it was, like, way flared up. And it would, like, scream at me, and it would say really dark, nasty things. I also believe that when you have been abused as a child, you know, and you haven't dealt with that abuse, there's, like, remnants of the people who have abused you, you know, and they're like screaming in your ear all the time. So I had like all this just nastiness and hatred and, and it was like there because I hadn't healed from that, you know, I hadn't dealt with that. Um, so, uh, when I, when I did start modeling, it was very hard because I had no self love. I was just, I, I, and I had no direction, you know, I had no direction in my life. So, I, I didn't have a sense of my self-worth. I didn't have a sense of what I would be good in, in uh, uh, going to school for. I didn't have a sense of, you know, what I could possibly make a living at. Because, again, a lot of it goes back to the sexual abuse. Um, you know, I, I really thought that I was only good for my body or my looks. Uh, but then I had this, like, weird perception that I was ugly, you know. So, and that's, a lot of that's to do with the BDD. So it was, like, this constant struggle with trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life and having these suicidal thoughts. And I thought, I'll be, a, you know, try my hand at modeling because I had a, a this this weird overinflated ego but like this terrible self-esteem so I went into modeling and I did sign a contract um and I, I thought you know if I don't make it I, I'll just kill myself like these are the kind of these are the kind of thoughts that I had all the time it was always like if I don't make it you know then my option b is to die <laughs> like you know and that's that's how I always lived I didn't tell anyone that but that's what I that's, those are the kind of thoughts I carried around in my head. And the gravity of that, right, in terms of the inner turmoil that's going on with you, Nikki, at that time uh, is really, really, really uh, compelling for me. You know, you talk about that, you know, sort of dichotomy between, you know, I had this ego about my looks, yet um, uh, I thought I was absolutely hideous, right? But... That is, to me, you know, we have a great saying in uh, uh, my 12-step fellowship, which is, you know, I'm a, uh, um, I'm a uh, uh, egomaniac with an inferiority complex, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so maybe you could relate to that in your active sort of uh, uh, disease. Exactly right. It's exactly right. And so um, there was no balance. It was just very extreme. Bingo. We lived in those extremes, didn't we? Very extreme. Never had a balance. Um, but it always went back to that baseline of I wanted to die. There was that, that baseline, you know, because I hadn't healed from anything in my life. And you and you say that, and I think that's so important, Nikki, when you talk about that, that, that healing. For me, uh, I needed to um, reconcile that I had PTSD, uh, that I needed to, uh, that I needed to treat. And I needed to, uh, uh, I, I, I was in therapy for over a year, um, and I cannot express how helpful that was for me as I was also working the 12-step program actively with a sponsor. I was also 
uh, in uh, EMDR uh, treatment for PTSD, where I was able to get back to that place and relive, essentially, those really, really, really painful, uh, haunting, disturbing uh, memories and experiences that really showed up sideways in all sorts of different ways in my life. And, and until I was able to really address those, I, I really couldn't get better. Was it uh, a similar experience for you? Absolutely. I mean, therapy for me has been, it's not what saved my life because I believe that having a personal relationship with God is what saved my life and doing the work. But I will tell you that therapy has been a big gift because until I was able to sit down and cry it out and get it out and, and be able to even understand what happened, I, I was hurting, you know, there was no way. So therapy has been the biggest gift for me ever. Yeah. And it allows us the, uh, the you, you, I love that you call it a gift. It allows us the gift to be able to put those experiences in their rightful place within ourselves so they no longer uh, are causing these uh, disturbances within us that affect our ability to be able to really live in a healthy way. Uh, and uh, and so uh, I can't uh, express uh, uh, loudly enough for those of you in the Way Out podcast audience if there is something that you're dealing with uh, uh, that is disturbing you, uh, please, please, please seek help. Uh, please, please, please uh, engage with a trusted therapist and um, uh, do yourself, give yourself the greatest gift of, uh, uh, of really working through those things so that you can put them in their rightful place and they'll stay there. Um, and, uh, and, and I never thought that that would be real for me. I, that's all the time we have for this week. Be sure to listen up for part two of my interview with Nikki DeBose, dropping next week to your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out, where we share stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. Or drop your host a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. There you can also find links to previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podcast Garden. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, contact me at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety day will.